What's up, everybody? At long last, welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am back from hiatus. Thank you for being patient. I'm very excited for the upcoming episodes that we have. We're, we're keeping it international, folks. We've got our Latin American correspondent, Juan David Rojas, back to talk about Brazil. And that's going to be a good time. And then I believe uh, in the next two weeks, we will have a wonderful com conversation with a whip-smart young person about nuclear in Jamaica. So keep your ears open and your eyes peeled for that in your inbox. For now, Juan, welcome back. How the hell are you? Great, Emmett. Thanks for having me back on. Um, I'm really excited about this. So just so everybody knows, uh, if you want to take a look at this before you listen to the episode, you don't have to read it beforehand, but it might help. Um, Juan has just published a piece in American Affairs called The Center that will always hold Brazil's lost decades. It's a fantastic deep dive into everything from wild high court shenanigans to industrial policy failures in Brazil. Uh, it is quite substantial, so substantial that I was like, well, we got to get him on. Um, he did a similar treatment for Mexico, uh, and that was the first time you came on, but you can find that everyone in the show notes. Uh, so definitely check that out either before or after this. Uh, for now, um, I think we need to start with some like, where are we at with Brazil right now? Let me tell you what I know a little bit about what's going on uh, in Brazil. Lula's back uh, after the Lava Yato, or however you pronounce it. Uh, he is back. Um, also, uh, Brazil had its own version of uh, January 6th on January 8th, uh, you know, <laughs> a year or two later. Uh, but Bolsonaro wasn't even in the country. He was doing things like eating Zabaro pizza in Florida and getting COVID for the 60th time. Um, I don't think anybody has gotten COVID more than that man. Uh, and, Leonlo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know that uh, Petrobras um, is insiders have leaked to Reuters that they're looking to do some more gas discovery um, and try to get some more of that stuff out of the ground. So that's sort of their next upcoming play. I don't know when they're doing that. Um, I pulled it up here so that I could talk about it, but this is from Reuters. Brazilian state-run oil company Petrobras is negotiating seven new natural gas supply contracts uh, for the coming years, um, according to sources that told Reuters. The contracts cover three gas projects, and mark the latest push to reduce prices, currently at around $12 million per BTU. So that's what drill I Drill baby know. drill. Drill baby drill. That's what Petrobras is up to. So fill in some gaps for me here. What are we looking at when we're looking at Brazil today? All right. Well, um, yeah, as you just mentioned, Emmett, I'm sure a lot of listeners, the headlines they've seen out of Brazil recently uh, we're regarding the really contentious 2022 election between the leftist Lula and right-wing Bolsonaro. Lula won, which is really historic in that uh, he was a former president. He was jailed and now he's back again for a third term, which is really incredible. Um, Bolsonaro, you know, he bet all these lies that the election would be rigged against him. Obviously, only if he lost. If he won, the yeah, right. Great. 
and uh, said that the voting machines couldn't be trusted. And uh, what's funny is that, you know, here January 6th, uh, Trump was still in office. Mm-hmm. And in Brazil, Lula was already inaugurated and the presidents were inaugurated on the 1st of January. And eight days later, mm-hmm. thousands of Bolsonaro supporters stormed all the seats of power in the Brazilian capital. And I mean, you know, chaos is not good enough of a word. But uh, anyway, yeah, my piece uh, talks about all of that and uh, Lula, Bolsonaro, um, and how they've contributed to a lot of Brazil's recent instability and, and importantly, um, the country's deindustrialization. Mm. Uh, I was reading, uh, I, I think, on Substack or one of the descriptions of the, of the podcast that industrial history is actually a component. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever yeah, we can, which is why I was so stoked that we could talk about some <laughs> industrial history for for Brazil. Um, and it seems like there are some like real themes, not just like Latin American themes, but global themes that play out in Brazil. I know the guys over at Alpha Bunga Bunga, not just because Alex Hochschuli is uh, living in Sao Paulo, um, but because Brazil and because of the go back patrons. and forth with them on on Twitter. Some he's great. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I played him in the piece. Uh, yeah, yeah. His uh, excellent piece on Brazilianization. So it's sort of like Italy and Brazil are their touchstones for uh, countries that can sort of like help you predict the future a little bit. You know, when things go wrong there, they tend to. Yeah, exactly. So prefigure what's going to happen. So my understanding is that, uh, I mean, obviously it still has state run entities, Petrobras, um, et cetera. But of course, very few have made it out of the last three decades unscathed. So what's the, give me the lowdown. How were these major state juggernauts formed? Who formed them? What was their context? Right. So, you know, you look at Brazil and of its 20 largest companies, 10 either were once or are still state-owned. Petrobras is a great example of that. It's actually Brazil's largest company. Um, but so the argument I, I make in the, the piece, which the, there's kind of layers to it, is that Brazil used to be a middling manufacturing power. And that's actually kind of unique in Latin America. Between uh, the 1930s until the 90s, in most cases, most countries in Latin America practice what's called import substitution industrialization. What that means is that you block products that otherwise would be imported um, with um, native goods. And so it's a it's protectionist policy meant to promote the domestic industry. You could call it a kind of America or Brazil first type of right. policy. That's essentially what industrial policy always means. Um, and every developed country at one point or another did ISI. The thing is that later they did free trade, but anyway, um, in most cases, unfortunately, in Latin American countries during the 20th century, they industrialized their mining, agricultural, and energy sectors. Mexico is a great example of this during the 20th century. It has these glorious uh, energy companies, so glorious now, but um, they, they were more glorious in the past, like Phoenix. But Brazil was different in that it prioritized high-value sectors in manufacturing, beeping up, for instance, its automotive and aircraft sectors, um, rather than just industrializing mining, culture, and energy. But they did do that. Um, and both of these things are important, just that today, 
of the bulk of Brazil's economy is focused on uh, mining, agriculture, oil, mm. uh, et cetera. But you need, in order to become a rich country to develop, you need both of these things. You need a Petrobras because heavy industry needs energy. And this is why someone like Petro and my native Colombia is really stupid. At least on that. <laughs> but uh, since the 90s in Brazil, there have been these discrete decisions by policymakers to shun industrial policy and manufacturing it instead promote those same extractive sectors uh, in addition to small business and construction. Um, and the result today is that Brazil still has a comparatively strong manufacturing sector compared to the rest of Latin America and feel like St. Peru. But the share of the economy in manufacturing is much, much less than it was in the past. Um, and depending on the specific sector, it's either stagnant or shrinking. Um, hmm. Instead, in most of Brazil's economy today, like they said, it consists of exporting primary products, both mineral and agricultural, soy, um, is uh, and oil are, are and so this is the result of you know an elite consensus often called neoliberalism. The narrative you hear from economists regarding Brazil and Latin America overall is that ISI was malicious and a failure, bred cronyism and corruption, kept afloat industries that wouldn't survive otherwise, and you know some of that is true. Uh, but so their solution was that government can pick winners and losers. Get government out of the way and let the market right. work. And trim the fat, right? Yeah. That sort yeah. of, yeah, get it's it a theoretically leaner, a little meaner. Yeah, it's theoretically yeah. more efficient. But the thing is, the, and they never talk about this, you look at it and economic growth and almost all of these countries would like double the current rate of the past 20, 30 years. Um, and there's still cronies. If anything, it's worse. And the, the economy of a country like Brazil is far less diversified than it was in the past. It's more prone to shocks and fluctuations in commodity prices. All of this is to say that, um, and it's kind of the conclusion uh, that I want to hear home, that industrial policy is hard. Uh, you know, when it is successful, it takes not years, but decades. But in my opinion, we have a duty to try to boost strategic sectors and companies. To me, the whole state versus market dichotomy doesn't really make sense. I mean, you can have industrial policy with private companies, obviously. That's what we're doing with uh, like the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction. Um, but you definitely need a, a strategy. And you know, it turns out when you just leave the market alone to do its work, sometimes the results are that great. Hmm, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's such a devastating blow to go from having a thriving... Uh, mid-manufacturing sector to just doing energy and resources. I mean, an energy resource economy is like highly vulnerable yeah. because you're totally dependent on your buyers, basically. You know, and if they're having a bad time, you're having a really bad time uh, because their demand destruction is growth destruction for you. You know, there's no uh, cushion uh, to sort of keep you stable. So. All right, let's talk let's talk about like some of what what goes down here. Um let's talk about nuclear in Brazil. I want to know about that. You tell yeah. me about that, man. I don't know anything about nuclear in Brazil uh and so I really want to know. Oh, tell me man. the story. Okay. Perfect. Um well, I mean, you are on the Nuclear Barbarians podcast, so I I think it's definitely appropriate. I did a lot That's of research right. just for th this topic. Oh, man, I appreciate it. 
first, to give some background, and this will be useful for all the companies that we talk about. You look at industrialization in Brazil and everything goes back to um, kind of like we talked about in Mexico with uh, Macedo Cardenas. In Brazil, an equally important figure, figure is Getulio Vargas, who was a really fascinating figure. He was both a democratic president and a dictator at one point and kind of straddled the line between being kind of like a right-wing fascist, honestly, while he was a dictator. Um, and he, like Lula, came back for a third term. He was democratically elected, and during the, the term, he was kind of like a left-wing populist. But he said on the, yeah, the period of um, ISI policies in the form of tariff protection, managed trade, uh, a sectoral unionization, a state development bank, um, state-owned steel company, the state-owned oil firm, Petrobras. And um, in, the, in a lot of these cases, in the long term, these industries were all successful. The, the one case of a serious failure of industrial policy, unfortunately, is in uh, nuclear. Um, Hard sector to get right. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, the... Really, what did in the sector was incompetence, to be honest. There was a lot of scandals. And the scandals were twofold. On the one hand, there were a lot of accidents and problems in the handling of nuclear materials, not even just relating to nuclear power, just like mining and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and related to uh, nuclear proliferation for nuclear weapons because of the, the um, uh, military dictatorship was key in developing the nuclear industry and a lot of industry overall in Brazil. Gotcha. Okay. But so during Vargas's uh, presidency, uh, a really interesting dude, uh, listeners should check out also the guy called Alvaro uh, Alberto da Mota e Silva. He was a vice admiral and invent Brazilian inventor who was on Brazil's uh, National Security Council called the GSM. And he had a number of propo proposals that Vargas approved to begin investigating, researching, and acquiring materials and technologies for um, the development of a nuclear industry that was approved in 53. Uh, and a uh, related government agency, that's it's a whole alphabet suit of agencies involved in all of this, um, sought to acquire nuclear attacks from the U.S. and other developed countries. A long-standing partnership started with West Germany the last decades. Uh, one of Vargas's successors, um, Juselino Kubitschek, he, he uh, actually under him, Brasilia was built. He founded the um, National Nuclear Energy Commission, uh, as well as the um, gotcha. Atomic Energy Institute in Sao Paulo that mm -hmm. had um, Brazil, the, Brazil's first reactor, which is the first to enter operation in the Southern Hemisphere. Well, so that's probably like a test reactor, right? I'm guessing yeah, yeah. for, yeah, okay. And uh, one of the problems was that, you know, countries like the U.S. didn't want you know, Brazil and other countries. I mean, you still, we, you know, we don't, we're trying to thwart Iran and whatnot, but this is historical. Um, developed countries kind of had a suspicious eye on anyone who wanted to develop a nuclear industry. Um, and the next progress that Brazil saw in nuclear came when um, the military took over in 64. Uh, they ramped up research and development in nuclear, and that caused a lot of friction with the U.S. because the military refused to sign off on a non-proliferation treaty. 
and they had a Cold War mentality, you know, mm-hmm. and the national security concern, they wanted to develop nuclear and they had a bit of a rivalry and arms race with Argentina, which was doing the same. Um, I, I wrote this down at a national security meeting. One of the military dict- dictators at the time, Costa and Silva, uh, he uh, said, quote, he said, voice of argument said, quote, doing research, mining and building devices that can explode and added, we will not call them bombs. We will call them devices that can explode. <laughs> I love it. So I didn't know about this whole arms race between Argentina and Brazil. That is fascinating that those two countries um, were competing for nuclear arms with each other. Uh, and I love the devices that explode line. That's yeah. I, I, I love that. That's oh, such a great workaround, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, the pure political ease. So um, it, it gets kind of better. Um, and then uh, later, Brazil and Argentina agreed to cooperate and in sharing information on nuclear uh, in the seventies, there were the, the you know the the energy and oil shocks, and that catalyzed a lot of further interest in developing nuclear in, on the grounds of energy sovereignty. Uh, um, a contract with Westinghouse and the uh, U.S. Atomic Energy Commission was approved in seventy one um, for the supply of nuclear fuel for Brazil's first uh, nuclear plant, Angra One, which is located in Rio. Um, and then uh, 74, a nuclear brass, which was the state-owned nuclear company, was founded. In that same year, India tested its first uh, nuclear weapon, and that really caused a panic in uh, the U.S. And you know, Carter took over later. He was really stringent on not wanting to support nuclear anywhere yeah. outside of the U.S. Brazil then turned to France and, uh, and Germany, and um, West Germany committed to export um new reactors over the course of 15 years. This is really significant at the time of this is a transfer from a developed country to a developing one. Um, and in cooperation with West Germany, uh, Brazil's second reactor, Angra 2, uh, began in 1976. Ten years later, Angra 1 was finally finished in 1985. Mm. And this is to give you an idea of some of the problems between 82 and 92. Uh, Angra was halted 16 times for a little for reasons. Oh boy, uh, that is a tough record. That is yeah. A tough Westinghouse record. itself actually saw the said that they thought their investment was a poor decision, and due to the constant interruptions, um, Brazilians called the the plan of a bagavumi, a firefly. Oh man! So just a real quick on on the India one. So around the 70s, this is an interesting note when Carter was like, "We're not doing nuclear anymore." No, new, uh, India was in into testing like that. India was also powerfully interested, as it is today, in civilian nuclear. Yep. And one American senator was hell bent to make sure that India never got it, and that was Ed Markey. Mm. And he did everything in his power to make sure, and he wrote a whole book on it out of print. Oh. Yeah, that was his victory lap about stopping the construction of civilian nuclear wherever he could in the developing world. So I forget what it's called, but you can sort of like, it's like one of those things where you can only like look at the cover on Amazon used and like every six months, like a used copy can show up. I've been meaning to pick it up, but very interesting. Yeah. So that's just a nice little, little detail there. Uh, So back to this firefly, I take it 
the industry is not super beloved in Brazil. Um, oh, and actually, this is the part of the, the podcast where I'm going to have to excuse myself, Emmett, uh, with you, because I feel this might be a poor taste on a nuclear <laughs> a podcast over to talk about some of the accidents. No, 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 please, we must. Uh, yeah. Um, if you haven't heard about the Goiás incident, it's called Brazil's Chernobyl. I definitely recommend you look into it, listeners, as well. Is this insane um, case in the city of Poyas? It's kind of a, a central, uh, the capital of the central state in Brazil. This is really, I'm just going to say it's Banana Republic stuff. And what's yeah. funny is that it, um, it actually doesn't even relate directly to nuclear power. Uh, no, not even at all to, to nuclear power. In 1985, a hospital in the city of Goiás left um, a, a radiology capsule filled with cesium-137. You know, this was used to treat like cancer patients that blast a controlled dose of mm -hmm. the cesium uh, for the treatment. And they relocated. Um, and for two whole years, this cesium was sitting there. There's like a correspondence of some people working at the hospital. Like, hey, we left the cesium back there. Probably do something about that. Uh, Probably go get it. And then some people were taken to jail. Um, they posted a security guard there to make sure no one, uh, you know, got into the abandoned hospital. But it just so happened that one day in 1987, the security guard didn't show up. And these oh. two burglars, they're sometimes called scavengers, went into the abandoned hospital, uh, found the capsule, thought it was something valuable. Um, and uh, took it home, started trying to pry it open. They started throwing up and they were like, oh, we, were, yeah, we probably ate something. They got it open. They found this beautiful blue shining powder inside. We're like, wow. Oh. Sold it to this scrapyard guy. Um, and uh, he uh, brought it home. And his daughter thought it was like beautiful berry dust. She like uh, put it on in like her hair. Oh. And like her brother like put it over her chest. She died. Um, and, uh, the, the, the burglar is also one of them, like his, his, uh, hands reportedly swelled up to like the size of like a bowling ball. Um, but they actually incredibly survived anyway. Uh, just like, you know, being passed around through the town, uh, something like a hundred and something people were thought to have come in contact with it. Eventually, um, I think the, the mother, the, the wife of the, the scrapyard guy realized that it was the 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 cesium. Yeah, she, she went to a hospital. Someone at the hospital realized that this was radioactive. By the guy, kind of like, "What the hell is going on? Where is this little?" <laughs> oh man! And uh, this caused the you know a national panic. The entire town was shut down. Around one hundred twenty thousand people were um, hurried into the stadium and tested. Uh, and cleaned up, scraped down. Um, only four people died, but I mean, uh, for the, the last terrible thing about this, when the girl that um, uh, died was being buried, the town people came out to protest, not because they were upset that she died. They didn't want her being buried because they thought she was radioactive. Oh, um, oh right. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that, uh, you know, 
information on radioactivity is pretty low. All you know is that it's scary and related yeah, to yep. the enormous bombs. It's already had this effect. Shutting down the town has only ratcheted up the fear. You know, mm -hmm. every, everybody has mishandled this in almost every single way that they could. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, you, you've talked about this. I mean, yeah, in, in the U.S., but yeah, obviously in Brazil, the nuclear industry isn't always honest or good at educating people about yeah, exactly how this stuff works. But um, yeah, later, like people were taken to trial over this. And um, I, I think um, one of the nuclear agencies was sued because they didn't dispose properly of the cesium. But it, it's funny, yeah, because it doesn't relate directly to nuclear energy, but it's definitely mismanagement of nuclear materials. On top of that, there were a lot of problems. Yeah, as I mentioned, I'm going to one uh, in a year before in 86, something like 20,000 liters of radioactive water leaked from the plant. Um, this was a huge scandal. This happened again in 2001. Uh, I won't go into some of the other cases, but uh, yeah, the mining of nuclear materials was also really problematic. Yeah, I'm sure if that's how uh, they handled uh, a small cesium problem that the way that they handled uh mining was not the best so okay what i see here is that we have sort of an industrial failure that centers around uh major political problems in brazil that has to do with lack of accountability and trust between government major industries and the people um that all sounds like a huge bummer and sort of par for the course like i said Getting a nuclear industry right is really, really hard. As you can tell, even the most developed countries in the world have mishandled their own nuclear industries, and they've been on the back foot for all sorts of reasons. But let's uh, let's sort of like move around the industrial sector here. Um, what, what, talk, when, um, oh yeah, what, 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 just to, to close the loop on uh, on nuclear. Um, I, and as I mentioned before, another thing that um, kind of derailed it. Uh, was the fact that there was this uh, like secret program for nuclear weapons. Uh, mm. Funnily enough, in the 80s, the head of um, one of the nuclear agencies traveled to communist China and, you know, for Zola, the right-wing military dictatorship at the time to get enriched uranium from Chinese counterparts. Yeah. And when um, uh, civilian rule was reestablished in 85, uh, there was a lot of commissions that investigated the staff and um, a lot of revelations really discredited the industry. Uh, in the 90s, Brazil's first democratically elected president who was impeached over corruption scandals. But anyway, uh, he had a link for a conversation. He kicked off a spree of mass privatizations, um, contributed to deindustrialization, uh, and he renounced nuclear power. He said that the plants that were there could be kept um, but no further uh, development of nuclear would be had. And um, Angra 2 was finally finished in 2001. And Lula actually then um, launched a new nuclear energy plan. He tried to, to revive the program under his government in, in 2010. A third plan in Angra uh, started being built in 2010. Unfortunately, still hasn't been finished. I saw somewhere that at one point it was supposed to be finished this year, but that hasn't happened. Yeah. And um, the end result of all of this is that Brazil, 3% of its energy comes from nuclear. And actually half of Rio's, because of the, the two plants oh, yeah. come from nuclear power. In a way, you could argue that it's still a success and that Brazil has 
nuclear power, whereas mm-hmm. the rest of Latin America doesn't. But I mean, that's not saying much. Yeah, yeah, your mileage may vary. So, okay. <laughs> That is, that is, uh, God, what a twisting, turning tale. Um, man. Okay. So let's, let's pivot to another industrial sector, one that nuclear is intimately related to. Let's talk about Electrobras, which is another one of these state behemoths, um, that of course, as it did in America, as it has in Japan, as it has in Australia, as it has all over Europe runs into restructuring right around the 90s. Um, tell, tell me the tale of Electrobras. The 90s electrical group thing. Yeah. So, you know, nuclear is kind of an exceptional and will be exceptional in our conversation in that, you know, by design, nuclear has to be, there has to be an industrial policy for nuclear. You're not going to have a mom and shop, mom and pop shop, you know, yeah. nuclear uh, you know, gig that's going to get up and running and, you know, power a whole country. Uh, but in the case of the other companies that we're going to talk about, there's um, the kind of a dichotomy in that some of these are a success of the state or of industrial policy, and then are also a success of like market reforms or failures of the market. Electrobras was uh, definitely a success of industrial policy, but a failure of the free market. And so had you referenced, um, First, uh, some history. The company was founded in 62 by Juan Goulart, one of Vargas' democratic successors. He was the president that was overthrown by the military dictatorship. Um, and this took time, as with all these other companies, but it's a really successful utility, succeeded in lowering electricity prices for ordinary Brazilians below uh, rates of the global average. Um, but beginning in the 90s, in 95, the Brazilian government privatized the electricity sector. And it still, it still kept some control and uh, majority control in Electrobras. But um, the idea was, you know, let's open this up to competition. Let's have the state-owned company compete with um, other companies or at least the different chains of the, the uh, grid and distribution or whatever. And... Um, uh, you know, this will be more efficient. Well, in the electricity sector, that doesn't work that way. Actually, competition creates more regulation and makes it more inefficient. It's a natural monopoly. It doesn't make sense. So, yeah, just a year later, prices rose 15%. And by 2006, they increased by 200%. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so some estimates oh today, some estimates today right? Brazil is having a... Uh, some of the highest uh, electricity prices in, in the world. The, the, the Brazil State Development Bank, the Bani de Essi, uh, describes itself as a privatization as a failure. And um, last year under Bolsonaro, they doubled down and said, you know, you know what the problem was? We didn't privatize enough. So enough, they, they yeah. sold off even more of the company. Now the government has a, uh, this became an electoral issue, actually. Um, the government only had the 40% share of the company and they, they said that um, this would reduce electricity bills by a whole 7%. And obviously, prices have gone up. It's not certain, you know, I mean, there's been the Ukraine war and other stuff. But sure. Know. There's a lot of noise in that data. Yeah. If, if that's it. But Lula came out against it, said he wanted to renationalize Electrobras. Uh, but um, actually, the under Bolsonaro, they put, a, uh, they put up a lot of conditions that um, a, mm. a huge fine would have to be paid if the company is renationalized. 
kind of sinister. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's in the billions too, right? Mm. It's something like twenty billion between yeah, fifteen yeah. and twenty billion, something like that, which is steep. You're basically saying like you have to pay this blood debt if you want, <laughs> on top of whatever it costs to buy back these assets. Um, and nobody wants to be like, okay, day one, I'm going to sink a bunch of political capital and actual capital exactly. to do something exactly. that. I'm not sure will work, even if it's something that I want. So, yeah, I need to find somebody who can do a whole global restructuring task. I've yet to find the general global electricity historian. Maybe I'll have to become one. Um, but I'm very fascinated. Like which companies, uh, which countries didn't like privatize their electricity sectors and compare them? It's like, hey, yeah, look, this is definitive. Please don't do this. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, when you look at Europe, there's also like, um, there's the EU market and then there's like what each country has within it. And so you get weird stuff, sort of like the United States. And that way you have like traditional utility areas or public utility areas that are inside of these larger market structures. So it's a very uh, tricky tapestry. Um, but it's not, it's not all for nothing. We've had some successes, right? In Brazil. Some things have gone right. Um, tell me about those. What's uh, what's one of the ones we can talk about? Uh, oh, let me right. see if I can pronounce this right. Right? Uh, what's it called? Embraer. Yes, that's exactly right. All right. Embraer is the shining success story, not just of Brazil but all of Latin America. It is wow. The um, at Embraer manufactures uh, planes for both okay. Brazil's military and in the commercial sector. It's a high value manufacturing company that competes with multinational competitors like Bombardier, Canadian company around the world. It is profitable, successful. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, the goal I think is that, you know, every, it would be nice as other countries like Colombia and Mexico had some kind of company mm. equivalent. And, and that said, unfortunately, um, Embraer is still like, it, it, compared to, Brazil's largest company is, I think it's like the 20 something, 30th biggest company in Brazil. But, um, but it's an important company. It was founded in 1969 by the Brazilian Air Force during the military dictatorship. And, you know, it, uh, its initial goals were linked to national defense. The military, obviously, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the, uh, background goes back as always to Vargas and some of the, uh, institutes for aviation um in Brazil's military going back to the 30s uh but so um it, it, again it took ambidiant decades to become profitable and successful initially military rule initially insulated the company from special interests um and state protection meant that the company could survive yeah on cronyism uh, for many years on subsidies, despite being unprofitable. But the, the thing is, the subsidies had a strategic goal in mind to improve production and um, research and learning through trial and error over time allowed the company to um, develop its own models for regional mid-sized jets that later turned out to be really competitive. And what's interesting is this, when um, Embraer was, was privatized in the 90s, in uh, 94 uh, and it had to be put up for auction i think five times and on the sixth it was finally sold it was viewed as so um 
undesirable uh, because of its financials that it took so long to sell it. Um, and um, the new ownership, they uh, had like a shock doctrine, they slashed wages to unionize a lot of the workforce, outsource a lot of the workforce, um, eliminated around half of it in 95. But kind of by chance, um, because they made that early and earlier investment in the mid-sized jets, that was the sector that took off during the 90s. The company became hugely uh, successful. So um, chance is a big part of it, but uh, privatization did help um, for collaboration with uh, multinational private companies. But, um, you know, I mean, uh, an important thing also is that the uh, the military and the government kept a, a golden share. Mm. That means that they have a, a seat as the permanent seat of the company's board uh, in permanent ownership, partial ownership of the company. It wasn't completely uh, privatized. Initially, the state was stipulated that um, foreign ownership couldn't exceed more than 40%. The military was really key mm. uh, to not have the... Uh, the, the company be completely sold out, then sure. You know, the truth is that if they completely sold out the company, there's little reason to believe that it would have survived as a Brazilian company it would have been. Yeah, it would have been something something a else. Yeah. Bombardier or Boeing or Wells. Yeah, no doubt. I think it's um it's such a fascinating story. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, basically the before privatization, they had invested a lot in midsize jets and jet engines. And then they get bought at auction. We see the typical deunionization, outsourcing, slashing, um, putting things into deals with contractors rather than being totally vertically integrated. Um, but it is that pre-privatized investment that pays off. Exactly. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure I had the timeline right because that is a really interesting twist of events. That's a nice twist of fate. That's yeah, yeah. I mean, so, it, it's, it's pure luck and this will come up later. The thing is, um, because privatization was done on purely ideological grounds, because I'm not actually completely against privatization. I think there are moments where it makes sense. Sure. Um, uh, it's just that because it's not done like strategically, it's just done ideologically. It means that no matter what in the 90s, you know, these companies would be privatized. If they don't have their shit together at the moment of privatization, they're going to get destroyed. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It didn't have the case. That previous investment really uh, paid off. And um, to give some uh, recent history, I, I mentioned this in the piece, horribly Bolsonaro was in the military and he's really proud of Brazil's armed forces. One of the first things he did was sell off Embraer to Boeing. Boeing acquired a huge No way. Embraer still survived again by chance because Boeing couldn't go through with the acquisition in 2020 because of the, the COVID pandemic. Get out, man. That is wild, yeah. son. Well, how crazy. So, so they still have their golden share. They still have their 40% or what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, you know, over time it's been reduced. Um, but yeah the, yeah, the government still has some ownership. Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. And then let's talk about what we started with, right? I brought about some news about Petrobras. Everybody knows that natural gas is sort of the big deal right now. I'll be interested to see if Petrobras, uh, not only do they want to cater the domestic side, but everybody wants LNG now. I don't know what they're thinking about there. Um, I don't know if you know, but before we can even touch on that, 
we need the story dog the big so boy. let's have it yeah the big boy the, the big boy petrobras again and this one goes directly back to vargas vargas like um Cardenas in, in Mexico, we talked about last time, he nationalized the oil sector he, and found, and um, uh, Petrobras was founded in 53 in, in his uh, third term. And um, this was important, but it's not quite as momentous um, as in uh, Mexico. You know, in Mexico, the Pemex is really key to the Mexican psyche. It's a bit different in Brazil. Yeah, they got a holiday for Cardenas there. Uh huh. But uh, Petrobras. Again, it took years to become profitable. Um, it, it wasn't profitable until the 1980s. So this took decades. Okay. Brazil's oil reserves are located offshore in deep sea wells that are really difficult to access with the technology from back then. As a result, they had to heavily invest in exploration related research since the 50s. And then eventually you get to the 80s, 90s, uh, 2000s, uh, the company finally took off. By the 2000s, Petrobras had more had more patents than um, any other Brazilian institution, and today is Brazil's largest company. It's extremely profitable and has investments and partnerships all over the world. If you go to a lot of countries in Latin America, you'll see Petrobras pumps, um, and all of this kind of despite the huge scandal that the company had. During the 2010s, with the as you mentioned, the Lava Jato investigations and the Lava Jato, that's what it is. Scandal, the kickback. Yeah. So, for, so for I think I have many uh, Anglo or at least American listeners, though I do have a high amount of people from all over the world. So happy about that. Happy to have a very international podcast here over at Nuclear Barbarians. But that means the car wash, which I love, is a turn of phrase. For a corruption scandal. And you have some great details in your piece about uh, Lava Jato. Um, I found myself actually laughing at certain junctures because it is so ridiculous. So, how, like, can you encapsulate what happens with Petrobras and Lava Jato for us? Yeah, okay. Where, where to begin? So, it's yeah, where, called, where to begin? <laughs> it's called Operation Car Wash because they were laundering a lot of the stolen money at, um, at a, um, a car station, the pumps. Oh, uh, the scheme was that uh, construction and in infrastructure projects for Petrobras, which the companies that built this out were Brazil's construction companies, Odebrecht is the most famous, but others like OAS um, and uh, Camargo Pohia, uh, anyway. Uh, they uh, were, over, well, you know, this is a classic scheme. Um, you, uh, um, skim up the top from overproduction. So you say, okay, I'm going to build, you know, whatever this building, uh, and it's set to cost this much. Whoops. It caught, it ended up costing double and I get to keep half of that excess amount. Yes, of course. And so yeah. it, a lot of this was, a lot of this corruption, um, uh, was kind of used to keep the incumbent government afloat. Uh, the kickbacks were ridiculous. It all came crashing down because um, Brazil before 2012 didn't have plea bargaining. And that proved really key. Through plea bargaining, they, they were able to arrest some of these uh, company executives um, and get them through uh, pleas to reveal key information that allowed them to take down a lot of the operation. Man. And so this redounds through 
Um, that's a simplified version, but it, it, it's no, that's, no, no, no. I think that's great. And so this this sort of like reverberates through. This is basically how they start going after Lula um, and his whole establishment. You have some great stuff in here. I don't think we have time for it now. Again, people, you have to read it because like the description of like how Brazilian politics works, it, there it is just so alien. It's a nightmare. The American system. You think it's bad here? It's way worse there. Yeah, that like rough compare that even rough comparisons don't really make sense at an institutional level. But basically, um, that corruption scandal allows launches uh, the um, the whole sort of insurgent right uh, in Brazil, and it's a big uh, Bolsonarismo show. uh, And Bolsonaro, of course, show up. And they're like, we're going to handle this corruption. That is not what happens. They, he gets co-opted by this, uh, this entity, the Brazilian Center Central, uh, which you do a great job of describing. But um, let's talk about uh, where does that leave after all of this, right? Because we've had this big dent in Lula. He's in prison. Now he's back. He's back, baby. Uh, Bolsonaro is uh, doing whatever he's doing. Bolsonarismo uh, still the, kind of exists, but the big news is that last week he was stripped by the Supreme Court, the, the electoral court specifically of his political rights. He can't run for office for eight years, and pretty much means he's dead. He's done. Wow, it is over. And so, but I know that there are still people that are basically like. Similarly, we still have, uh, no matter what happens to Donald Trump, we will still have Trump loyalists, right? Uh, Trumpism will live on, right? Uh, you can kill the man, but not the idea. Juan yeah. is what I'm trying to tell you. Um, so let's let's sort of update all of this. What are we looking at in Brazilian energy and industry today after all of this fanfare? So you know, um, I've actually been a bit surprised because Lula obviously was really big and Petrobras and energy actually um you know he was a former union leader of uh, yeah really uh, Petrobras exploded in the 2000s he authorized a ton of projects and um I had a feeling that his in his third term he would be a little bit more hostile to the oil sector you know because there's all this push for renewables mm-hmm. and uh, climate ideology, which I, I, I'm sympathetic to. I'm just sympath- I, I just hate it when it's stupid. <laughs> uh, yeah, Petro before, but um, uh, Ben and Lula's message, one of his core pitches during the election, was uh, on environmentalism, on mm-hmm. the Amazon and combating climate change, and actually, amazingly, some other great news that came out. A few days ago or last week of his administration, he has managed to cut deforestation already in his first six months, six months by 30%. Wow. That's fantastic. Good for him. Yeah. That's yeah, wonderful. Fantastic. But uh, while doing that, he has authorized a ton of uh, energy projects, including with Petrobras, a lot of which are um, really pissed off environmentalists. I uh, send you an article in uh, a Brazilian newspaper. I don't know if you got the chance to see oh, it. Oh, yeah. Remind yeah. me. I, I was trying to, you would have had to use like Google Translate, but the translation I thought was actually pretty good. But he just listed a number of projects that uh, Lula authorized, including like a highway through the Amazon, um, yeah. uh, 
the drilling of for Petrobras near the mouth of the Amazon, which that one actually does seem kind of controversial. Um, but most of them seemed innocuous to me, seemed good and probably will help the country. But, uh, you know, environmentalists were just losing their shit. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, <laughs> yeah. How could you? Well, there's no pleasing them. So that, I mean, it heartens me to hear that. It heartens me to hear that sort of like AMLO uh, isn't uh, alone in um, supporting the state oil thing. I mean, he's got a whole, people can go back and listen to our episode on that. You really should, because the situation that Pemex is in is not easy. And AMLO sort of betting big on a hometown, uh, what we all hope is not a vanity project. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's a really interesting tale. But what's when we look at the whole Latin American scene with industry and energy, like, are there any trends that uh, us energy people and industry people want to be aware of that you're noticing? Well, well, let's let's go over to the other side, the really reprehensible case. Okay. Petro in Colombia. Yeah, I was like, I was like, I feel like we're getting some foreshadowing about who we're going to talk about. So who's Petro for for listeners that don't know? He's uh, the current president of Colombia. He's Colombia's first leftist president in Colombia, famously um, uh, only just uh, elected a, a leftist was historically a really right wing uh, mm -hmm. country. Um, and he actually has a message that's really similar to Lula and Anlu. In a lot of ways, he's a left-wing nationalist and prioritizes industry. He hasn't really gone anywhere. He's current um, government. But uh, unfortunately, it, it's kind of mixed up in that while he like wants uh, Colombia to industrialize, uh, he also just despises its energy sector, its oil sector specifically. He has um, yeah. been further oil exploration. Uh, and that is really, really uh, killing off interest from investors. It, it's it's dumb because he has this maniacal attitude that's like, well, we're going to be dead in 12 years, you know, classic stuff. We need to do yeah, yeah. everything possible and invest in renewables. It's like, dude, Colombia like gets a ton of its energy from hydroelectric dams and like, yeah. uh, what are you worried about? The state oil company, like, there's an argument there that most of uh, the country's um, finances, the, the revenues for the government come from that company. Uh, and that makes it really vulnerable to oil shocks. But, you know, if you just try to kill it off, it just makes things worse. Yeah, and, especially if you're not offsetting that with some other type of investment. I also see that he's really uh, brought the hammer down. I think I remember reading this. I don't know if we've talked about it, but he's. I've talked to another Colombian friend of mine about this. Um, uh, but he's really come down on coal mining as well. Yeah, um, yeah. In the in the country, fracking. Um, to be fair, fracking is really unpopular to, in the the country. Um, even some of the right wing candidates last year, I remember, came out against it. And so maybe they were bond rather in the end, but yeah, is there a reason for that? Like, it's like I can so I can understand because coal um, just uses a ton of land. And uh, there, I get why someone would be like, okay, we'll do oil, we'll do this, but we won't do coal. Um, I can understand that. But to say we won't do fracking, I mean, I have an American bias towards fracking. I'm like, it's great. What are you worried about? Uh, so what's, what's the concern in Colombia? I haven't looked too much into it 
really deeply, but I imagine that the the point that's always raised always raised is that it contaminates the water. Gotcha. Uh, I imagine that the way it's been done probably hasn't been up to par. So yeah, yeah there's a lot of animosity from local communities. Again. Okay. I, I can get that. I'm not going to speak on the Colombian situation and what they should or shouldn't do with fracking because um, I don't know how their particular industry handles it. Uh, I think that's very interesting. And so, yeah, Petro seems to have some very strange ideas. He was very hard on the renewables, climate apocalypticism. Is he alone yeah. in Latin America with that or are there are others like him? Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's funny. There is definitely a mix. Right now, uh, most of Latin America's leaders are on the left. Don't hold your breath. Conservatives that are listening, this will change. Give it a few years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are, yeah, leaders like Petro and um, Boric in Chile who are hard on... I don't know as much about Chile. I don't know if Boric is outright hostile. To like the oil sector, for instance, and Chile is really big on mining. So I think he just kind of had to, been forced to authorize a lot of that. Yeah. But um, let me think who else? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Omo is, is a drill baby drill guy. So I mean, yeah, he loves it. He loves it. And even after we talked, um, uh, Pemex and has, uh, or not Pemex, the, uh, um, what's the electric company, the National Electric Company? Uh, CFP. CFE has bought up even more uh, yeah. foreign assets, right? Mm -hmm. So the foreign owned assets. So they are sort of centralizing a lot of stuff right now. So, um, I mean, I think it'll be interesting, like Latin American politics uh, stays surprising and also completely unsurprising at the same time. Um, it's got that nice parallax quality going on to it. To it. In uh, Argentina, they, they um, have been moving forward with that uh Vaca Muerta project, which um, I, you might know more about. It's, um, uh, what is it? Is it an LNG or is it like a... Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's an LNG terminal. I haven't seen anything about it in a while, but I know that they're going ahead with some projects. So, um, in, for instance, Bolivia, the, the really hard left Bolivian government is really uh, into the national gas, uh, the natural gas sector and... Um, is that actually yeah, kind of hostile to the renewables? That's fascinating. Yeah, I think I really think that we're going to see a lot of that. I think that. Um, so my just sort of licking my finger and sticking it out and seeing where the wind blows thing going right now is that we're going to see a lot of countries all over the world, depending on where they are, get really friendly with either coal or with gas. If they have big gas reserves and they have the industry to do it, I think they're going to get down with it. If they were in the situation like Pakistan or uh, any of these other countries that really felt the bite of Western hypocrisy in the LNG market last year. They're going to double down on either coal and or nuclear. That's what they're going to do because they want things that have fuel on site that are abundant, local, and they don't have to worry about Germany coming in and buying them out of the goddamn market after swearing up and down that they're not going to commit to fossil fuels like that. I think that's a very painful lesson to have to learn, and nobody wants to learn it twice. So that's uh, everybody that is a firm opinion, loosely held. Uh, of course, all predictions are fragile. I thought it'd be interesting, yeah, if we uh, talked about like comparing Pemex to Petrobras, there's some interesting things. Yeah, please do. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, because I think 
uh, I mean, it's sort of like you have two great test cases to contrast and compare. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, going back to the, the, the theme, the, the framework that we had, uh, Petrobras was a, yeah, it definitely a success of the state, but you could also describe it as a success of the market. Uh, conversely, Pemex was a success of industrial policy and less so with uh, uh, market reforms. Um, so both are both display what I would call good industrial policy, hashtag good industrial policy. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Pemex definitely shows a, a bad case of free trade. And like, what do I mean by that? So good industrial policy is like when, okay, you condition support on results. We talked about this last time with Pemex, the strategy that was used, Petrobras did something similar. It's usually you use either subsidies or tax breaks. And you say, look, I will cut your taxes if you increase oil production. And so over time, that you reward that good behavior with um, the subsidy or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, bad industrial policy is just the, yeah, you, you, you feed a company that isn't going anywhere forever. Yeah, it's loyalty, not results. Uh-huh. But um, at the same time, there is a point where free trade can be smart or market reforms can be smart. When you know that the company is capable of competing with um, foreign multinationals, it, it actually might make sense to have it compete with uh, foreign competitors. Um, interestingly, you know, you could describe Pemex as a kind of victim of its own success. We talked about this before because its oil reserves were more easily accessible. And as a result, they were, they were able to be exploited much earlier than Petrobras. Um, when, um, you get to the nineties and industrial policy runs, falls out of favor. There's just this idea. It's like, oh no, the government should stop doing anything and the market will make the company um, better. Uh, the company would then turn into a cash cow and actually taxes were increased on the company over time on Pemex. Uh, and this made it actually, yeah, less productive. And there were some more concentric reforms, yeah, selling off subsidiaries. Um, and, uh, today, like Pemex is absurdly taxed. This is one of the things Onlo did when he first came mm -hmm. in, he cut taxes, um, to help the company. Uh, and I, I forgot to mention this last time in the nineties, the Cantarell oil field, which is the Mexico's most productive oil field for a long time, dried up. And so to keep Pemex going further, significant investments would need to be made that the company alone wouldn't be able to uh, do. And so production began declining in 2004 and only recently stopped declining under, uh, AMLO and, you know, to make matters worse then in. Uh, there was the energy reform in 2014 and, and that caused production and investments to fall and flip even more. And, and it makes sense because, you know, the company by the nineties is not doing great. And you can see as serious problems, if you start liberalizing the sector and having it compete with foreign companies, uh, it's, uh, it's not going to work out. Petrobras was, uh, had was having its boom precisely in the 90s. And in that sense, it, it got lucky. So 
because it boomed in the 90s and they opened it up to a competition, it actually helped. Um, and that's kind of the story of a lot of Latin America that you liberalize um, these sectors. This is what happened to Brazil automotive industry. We talked forever about this, actually. Brazil had a really strong indigenous automotive sector. In the 90s, they opened it up to competition with imports. It decimated. So, and that's what I mean. The free trade was done on ideological and not strategic grounds. There's a moment where free trade might actually help. And so countries like the U.S., for instance, and yeah, in Europe, uh, they were initially protectionists. And once their companies were at a point where, you know, we knew that they could compete on a global scale, then you do free trade. Mm. Mm. That's really fascinating. Um, yeah, man, they're all of these little national industries that just get crushed in the 90s. Brazil is not alone in that. Um, so yeah, yeah just, just an interesting, I really think it's interesting, like what keeps a company disciplined, how it works. And I think what's fascinating to me about what you just said about Petrobras and Pemex is that really the logistical challenges that Petrobras faces in getting its offshore oil together, make it a highly disciplined company that doesn't sort of like take for granted what it's doing. Exactly. And exactly. the it's kind of easy like accessibility. The resource, it's kind of, of like the resource curse within the resource curse. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And then, then Pemex sort of had the opposite thing happen. That's really interesting. Yeah. One, uh, one other thing that's really uh, fascinating, you know, Pemex is a completely state-owned company. Petrobras, mm -hmm. over time, since the 90s, the, the government reduced its share of ownership. It's still majority. And this is something that has been talked about, whether it's privatizing the company even more, which is mm -hmm. you know, even some people on the right are, are skittish about. Um, but that's important because uh, in as screwed as Pemex is, interestingly, because of that, it seems as though it's more insulated from fluctuations in the global oil trade. Um, and so um, I, I mentioned this in my article about Mexico. You look at the rig count in Mexico and it consistently goes up, even despite things like the COVID-19 pandemic. You look at the rig count numbers here and there's like a plummeted to them mm -hmm. when COVID outbreak uh, began. And like uh, uh, the oil industry, like, like Biden, Lula has actually also complained that Petrobras is buying a lot of its own stock and not investing enough in this, you know, disincentivizes production, which is a, a fair point. Pemex does have that problem because it's not a publicly traded company. Petrobras right. has shares on the stock market. And mm -hmm. so there, there are all these incentives that can be malicious. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's so different from what we have uh, here in in America. I mean, maybe maybe one day we can get an episode together and we can talk about what the hell is going on in Venezuela and its uh, oil company. Because I feel like that yeah, you're already laughing. I think that's going to be a wild story, but one we'll have to save for another day. So I'll ask you again. Any concluding thoughts before we say goodbye, my friend? Well. I think the same thing as last time. Energy matters. Yep. Energy matters, baby. <laughs> I love it. We can sign off on that. Juan, thanks again for stopping by. People can find the article um, in the show notes along with uh, Juan's Twitter and his LinkedIn. If you want to reach out to him, please do. He's a guy that knows 
a lot. And until I see you next time, remember to stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant, my friends. We will see you next time.